So we are beginning chapter 4 of Ephesians today. So, a new series, right? Every chapter we'll just call it a new series. And um, so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and head over to chapter 4 of Ephesians. This is a, a transition point, actually, in the book of Ephesians. There's uh, six total chapters in, in Paul's letter here. And for the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's very much been in the indicative um, that is, it's been mostly these, these statements of truth about uh, who God is, what God has done for us, uh, what we should believe. Uh, we've seen uh, very explicitly the way God has saved us by grace through faith, uh, that it's not a result of works that we have done. We've also seen that this, this gospel is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Uh, those have been big themes throughout this. And so then these last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, uh, this portion we're actually beginning today, this is uh, going to be mostly imperatives. That is, uh, statements telling us how to live, what to do, uh, a kind of, uh, a sort of um, seek to do this and be careful that you don't do that uh, kind of statements. Uh, we've seen so far orthodoxy, that is correct belief. Uh, and what we're going to see more of in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is orthopraxy, uh, correct practice. Uh, so anyway, these first three chapters, again, are the foundation, and these last three chapters are more of the house that gets built on this foundation. You might say that, uh, that the first three are the fuel for the last three in some sense. In other words, I know I'm getting a bit redundant here, but in other words, it's, it's not godly lives that set us free to believe the truth of the gospel, but rather the truth of the gospel that sets us free to live godly lives. And so after the glorious statements about God's sovereign grace um, in salvation in, in chapter 2, you might remember that famous statement in, in verses 8 and 9. You might remember that uh, we learned afterwards that we also are told that we are God's workmanship, having been created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And uh, what we're going to see here in the second half of, of Ephesians is just a better picture of these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Uh, and so let's, let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 4, we're just looking at the first three verses today. Keep it short here. <clears throat> and so let's, uh, let's read that. Chapter 4, Ephesians, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, you have the words of eternal life. And so we, like all Christians before us, come to your word, looking for the light of truth to shine into the darkness of this world, uh, where we live our lives as sojourners, as aliens, um, waiting our, our heavenly home. May we be encouraged and strengthened this morning towards obedience to your word and to love each other as, as fellow sinners resting in the grace of your gospel um, so that we may now live as saints in your service each and every day. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul could have begun this portion of the letter. It's a kind of a new section, and he's reminding them a little bit here. He could have begun it by saying, uh, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord. 
But he takes a different angle, a surprising angle. He, he reminds them that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And he's reminding them this because he wants them to understand that, that he really knows the results that can come about as, uh, for, for being a disciple of Christ uh, and, and someone who walks worthy of the gospel to which he's been called. He understands that. Uh, in, in, in Greek, which is the language that Paul originally wrote this, this letter in, uh, the word order is very, very different. Uh, in English, we, the word order is important for uh, all the different parts of language. But in Greek, you can put it in any order you want. Um, and, and the very first word in chapter 4 is parakaleo. Uh, it's the word there that you, you see, I, I urge you, right? Uh, it's a word that's often translated, I encourage you. That's the, the, the thrust of what he's about to say here. That's the, the big part. He's, he's telling the Ephesians here, uh, for your good, this is what I want you to do. Okay? Uh, in, in other words, Paul cares for them. And, and so his, his, his long-term recommendation to them is, is this. And, and, and that's what he's going to be getting at here. And so, so what exactly is he encouraging us Christians, the church, to do here? And it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea of walking, this was a, a Jewish metaphor uh, for how someone behaves, how they actually live their life. We, we read about it in, in Deuteronomy 5.33. You shall walk in, the way, in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. We also see it in, in 2 John 1.6, which tells us, um, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And really, it's an American metaphor also, right? It's not one of these ones that's fallen away. Uh, it's uh, regarding how someone behaves. You've likely heard the statement, you know, you're, um, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. Really, you know, are you um, really be who it is you say you are? Uh, and so Paul's here encouraging the Ephesians and you and I as Christians here some 2,000 years later to, to not just say that we believe uh, the call of God on our lives as Christians. Not just say we believe it, but to actually um, live in a way that shows that we really believe the call of God on our lives. And this is not to say that we should just have outward conformity. You've missed the point if that's what you hear. That, that was what some of the Pharisees were doing. That's what led Jesus to call them whitewashed tombs, right? They looked very clean on the outside, but, but in the inside was only death. And so... God has loved you, and God has called you uh, to this new life in, in Christ, and that changes absolutely everything. It changes the way we see the world, it changes our ethics, it changes the way that we relate to others, it changes our priorities. It, uh, you know, God has filled us then with his Holy Spirit so that we can live as God has called us to live, and the way that we mature and grow in our following of, of Jesus is, is this big word called sanctification, that we become more like Christ in our actual behavior. Um, but what does it mean to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? The first thing you've got you to know here is it, it's not you or, or me who is worthy. That's not the idea here. It's, it's the calling itself that is worthy. In, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul spoke of this calling when he, when he said, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you uh, he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And I hope you remember that, that after that, he goes on in chapter 2 to, to expand further about, about our being dead in our sins. And, and as, we are, as we carried out the desires of our flesh, that was the life we once lived. And that we were children of wrath, it even calls us. And, and then he tells us, but God. Remember that? But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together in Christ. Our calling is that as, uh, of Christians, of, of being children of God. We are the, the bride of Christ. That's what we've been called to. And so our, our calling at the very core is that it is a calling to being united with Christ our Savior. And so he's urging us now to walk in a, in a manner that is worthy uh, of our union with Christ, which tells us there is a way that you and I can walk, a way that you and I can live that is unworthy of the calling. Um... Worthy is a tricky word here. And I, I realize that because we hear that sometimes and we think, uh, okay, I've got to be a certain way to kind of deserve this, right? Uh, it does not mean that we're earning anything at all. It, it might be better understood as, a, as appropriate, honestly. Um, there is this, this way for us to live that is an appropriate response to the grace of God in the gospel. Uh, and the appropriate response, the, the worthy manner of walking is to truly submit ourselves to, to God our Father. Uh, Colossians 1.10 speaks in a really similar phrase. This, this phrase that Paul uses here is, is very common, actually. But in Colossians 1.10, he says, uh, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, in Philippians 1.27, uh, this phrase again, we see it, but listen to what he says afterwards. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, what, what Paul's getting at here is no longer be who you were without Christ, apart from Christ. Now truly be who God has made you to be in Christ. Wanting to see that consistency. And so Paul then is, is urging we who are Christians to speak and to act and to react and to exist like someone who knows that they are redeemed by the blood of Christ in the gospel. And so then it, it helps to take just a, a quick inventory here, to go a little out of order from verse 1 to verse 3 here, to take a, a quick inventory to see this wide-angle idea about the question that we're being asked. You know, this question is, how do we live in a way that is worthy of our calling, right? That's the question that arises here. And the, the answer there is, is given in the text by maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's, that's how we live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, he's telling us. Um, that Christians be united to each other and at peace with each other. Now, now notice there, you're not creating the peace, are you? Um, we're not creating the unity. Christ has already created the unity for us. Same way I didn't... I didn't create my car. Volkswagen created my car in a Chinese factory somewhere. Um, but I maintain the car. Uh, the car will stop working if it's not maintained. It won't function properly. And so what we're being called to here is this maintaining of the unity that Christ has already secured for us with his sacrifice on the cross for us. And so then verse 2 tells us that we're to do this by listing off four ways that we maintain the unity, right? Uh, four ways that we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We do so with all humility. We do so with gentleness. We do so with patience. And we do so by bearing with one another in love. 
So we're going to look at that list. Before we get there, I want you to understand that that ongoing unity does not happen on its own. It's, it's not like the oak tree growing in the woods, where you have no idea who's taking care of the oak tree. It just grows. Uh, it, it's more like the, the farmer's field, right? The, in the farmer's field, it's got to be plowed and worked and planted and, and cared for so that these crops can, can grow up strong and, and fruitful. And I expect you've probably seen this in smaller levels in, in your family, whether you're a child and you're thinking back to the family you, you grew up in or growing up in, or whether you're a parent and you see it in, the fam- in, the, in your family. Um, Husbands and wives must work so as to not grow apart. That's an active thing. Uh, the same is true of, of brothers and sisters in a family. If they don't make efforts to have a good relationship with each other, they will drift apart uh, to the point of having no relationship with each other as adults. Uh, parenting in this picture, you know, parenting myself gave me just this, this new perspective on unity. One of the things that makes me most sad in life is when I see my children fight or when they're selfish and when they uh, lack patience with each other or when they are, you know, intentionally seek to hurt each other's feelings, those kind of things. And the opposite's true as well. One of the things that gives me one of the most joys to see my, my children when they're loving and kind and unified together. It's the same in the church. You know, God desires his children to work towards godly unity in his church. It, it, it just makes you wonder then, you know, how sad does it make God, when he looks at us and, and, and sees the way sometimes we are cruel to each other, the way we're hurtful to each other, the way our, our brothers and, and sisters in Christ, the way we, we, we lack patience and are selfish and our, our, the way we interact to those in the, in the church family at times. And, and here's the deal. This plays out. Sometimes we look at it such a wide angle that you can't really understand it, but it plays out in all the smaller relationships you have within the church. The truth is you won't want to be BFFs with everyone in the congregation, everyone in this covenant community. You just won't. And that's okay. But that doesn't change the fact that God is calling us to to unity, that he desires to see unity among his his people. And so that is a a call in our life to to seek to actively maintain this unity. The importance of of unity within the church, then, is playing out in all these personal relationships. Like I I mentioned a moment ago, you know, husbands, when when you seek peace with your wife, wives, when when you seek unity with your husband, that is not just a a wonderful joy for your marriage and and your personal stress levels and all those kind of things, but it's also a way that you minister to this congregation. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that unity is, is building up in the congregation or it is tearing down in the congregation, starting at some of those individual levels. And so God is, is calling his people in this passage, uh, it says here, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the first way he tells us to maintain the unity of the Spirit is with all humility. With all humility. Now, a hundred years ago, I wouldn't need to say this, but in our era today, I probably need to. Certainly need to. Uh, you need to know that humility does not mean that we abandon theological convictions. Um, it doesn't mean that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we abandon you know, our, our view of the gospel, just deep conviction there. To, the, to say that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ is not a prideful statement. It's a truthful statement. Now, there is a prideful way that you can express that truth and should, not, or should be avoided uh, in, in every possible way. But, but absolute conviction in regard to the gospel is not in and of itself prideful. 
don't, don't believe that, that modern fallacy that says that, you know, you must be open to everything and, be, and have conviction on absolutely nothing if you're going to be a humble person. That's just not a, a true thing. So then, what is this humility that Paul is urging us towards? What does he want? What does it look like, this humility that he wants to be present in our, our interactions with each other? How do we cultivate what is true gospel Humility and, and, and Paul, when he's writing to the Christians in, in Philippi, right, in the letter of Philippians, he, he gave us a clear statement on humility. In Philippians 2.3, he says this. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves, yourselves. Uh, to consider your fellow Christians as more significant than yourselves. To consider their situation, to consider their needs. Um, you know the opposite of humility, right? What is it? You can say it. Pride. Absolutely. Um, pride considers self of greatest significance. Pride and humility actually cannot both exist in our hearts at the same moment. We certainly experience both of them, but they cannot both exist in our hearts at the same moment. And, and so one of the things we ought to be praying for is that God would, would grant that humility just make a home in our hearts for the, for the sake of the church, for the sake of, uh, of unity in Christ's church. See, one of the reasons that humility is so necessary for unity in the church is that humility means repentance. Proud people do not confess their sin. They justify their sin. They justify it with reasons why. They, they make little of their sin or they point to other people's sin who they believe to be worse than their own. It's only with humility that we can ever repent. And humility is, is not just an, an, an issue for some people. This is the thing to understand. It is an issue for every single one of us. You know, even in our, our view of our own humility, sometimes that, that pride sneaks in the back door. You know, that, that realization of, you know, I'm, I'm more, more humble than that guy. Yeah. Yeah, you are. I mean, I, I hope you find encouragement in, in this area to know this, though. Um, where God and His grace, this is an area where God and His grace can actually grow us. Okay? It's not like your height, where you're born a, you know, with a certain height and that's it, no matter what you do, no matter what shoes you wear. It's not really changing your height. This is something, an area where God can actually grow you. You can become a more humble person by the grace of God. Um, that should be a great encouragement to us. Now, the second way that Paul is encouraging us to maintain unity here is with gentleness. Gentleness, uh, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. We, we know that from Galatians 5. Um, it does not mean weakness. Too often, gentleness is, is, is explained as weakness. It is not weakness. Rather, it is, it is strength under control. If you've ever watched um, a big lion, you know, mother or father playing with its cubs, then, then you've seen what strength under control looks like. What you've seen is, is gentleness, because in that moment you're seeing this, this powerful beast that could just rip those cubs to, to, to shreds, you know, using its actual mouth, and yes, that, that gentleness and that playfulness. That's a picture of what gentleness is, not weakness, but, but strength under control. And, and the point is that we are to be to gentle with each other verbally, you know, not pointing out every single mistake somebody makes. You know, that, that's why this goes so well with this third aspect that Paul has here for, for maintaining unity in the church. You know, not only are we to be gentle, but we're to do so with, with patience. You know, if we're honest, peace is not easy to maintain with everyone. 
Uh, it's just not. I, I remember a statement that made me laugh at the time. There was a, a college student, a girl, who uh, was saying, in, in the context of dating, she said, the least attractive thing about a guy is when he's not attracted to me. Made sense, right? Um, you know, in a similar way, and this is where it relates, in a similar way, you may at times feel like someone in the congregation, one of your Christian friends, just doesn't like you. You might, you might find that, you, you know, your personality, for whatever reason, just doesn't vibe with their personality. And it's not easy at those times to keep caring about someone who you believe doesn't care about you. It's just not easy. You know, how do we avoid in those moments not, not growing cold in our hearts, you know, in these instances? And that's why Paul here calls us to, to this patience along with humility and gentleness. Because, you know, we must patiently endure the different ways that people are, the different personalities, the way others think, the way they act. You know, we must endure these, these unintentional offenses that people inevitably are going to do against us. Uh, you know, at the same time, it's just enduring actual sins committed against us. And so patience is, is cultivated in the life of the Christian when we know our own sin very well. That gives us a beautiful perspective, a, a beautiful position for which we are going to be able to, to forgive others easy. You know, we know the patience that God has shown us week in and week out. The way that God continues to show us patience despite our, our failures. You know, when we realize just the debt that God has forgiven us, then that's when we, you know, when we feel that, when we really understand that, that's when it, you know, it grows into patience towards others. Particularly in, in regards to the way that we, we handle just general offenses against us. You, you know those situations where you explain to your friend, so this is what happened. And, and they kind of give this judgment at that moment. Well, yeah, you have every right to be angry at them, right? And you're like, yeah, okay, I can be angry. Uh, well, Every right to be angry at someone is not the same thing as you are now required to be angry at them. Very different things. Uh, the offense may be very real, but that does not uh, have to become this anger, especially when reconciliation is a, is a better way forward, a way that God calls us to. You see, because peace is what happens after reconciliation, and peace is a, a beautiful thing that we as Christians should be seeking. You remember in the, the book of Genesis, you know, even children's Bible. This is one of the ones the children's Bible actually include. You know, uh, Jacob's brothers, they, they, they don't like him. They're jealous of him. They sell him into slavery, and, and he ends up, um, <clears throat> uh, and, and then it ends up that his brothers, his family that's actually sold him away, need food. And they come to Egypt to get the food, and, and what do they find? There's Jacob in the position. He is the guy who decides whether you can get food or not. He's a high-ranking uh, Egyptian official, and he certainly has every right in this moment. All of his friends would be like, yeah, you have a right to be angry at them. You can definitely be angry. You are justified right now. But instead of just being angry and pouring it out on his brothers, instead of that, he's patient and he's gentle and he's humble and he forgoes his right to be angry. And in the end, uh, that brings about this unity in his family. They're reunited in a way that is just, just beautiful. That's one of the stories that we, we see in Scripture and just love to see. But that's the way that our lives can be playing out over and over in the same way. So then the, the last thing that Paul mentions here is this bearing with one another in love. Did you catch that word, one another? One another, right? That's, uh, you know, walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called means that we walk together. Not alone. We walk with each other. You know, God has for our good, for the good of his people, he has made us to dwell within community. And within the church to dwell within a really close-knit community. And I, and I know some of you are thinking, ah, 
I don't really like people. Some of you maybe. You know, even, even introverts need community. Um, you know, if, if that weren't the case, there would be some like introvert clause in the text, you know, except for introverts. Uh, but that's not what it says, right? To everyone, all of God's people need community. The truth is, God's people need introverts. Uh, the community does. And, and so we're all seeking this idea that we're bearing with one another in love. You know, anytime then that we're speaking of love, there's a, a verse in 1 Corinthians 13. It's read at almost every wedding you've probably ever been to. But it, it is a beautiful thing. Even though you see it in all these cliche places, it is such a beautiful passage about what it means to love one another. There, and, and there in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we read this. It says, <clears throat> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you ever find yourself unsure, am I behaving in a way that is loving to that person? Am I showing love to my Christian brother or sister, then you can walk through this verse with that specific situation, that specific person in mind. And you can ask yourself, am I, am I being patient with them? Am I being kind to them? Am I envying them in my heart and so on? I won't go through the whole thing for you here, but it's just a way to help us understand, am I acting in a way of love in the way that God calls me to? Now, Colossians 3.13 also puts some flesh on the bones of this concept of bearing with one another. Uh, listen to the way that it, God there calls us to forgive others. It says, bearing with, an, with one another, and if one has complaints against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a bear with one another, to quick to forgive. I want to share one more verse that speaks to our maintaining unity in the, in the, in the church. John 13, 35, Jesus is speaking. Uh, and you know this. This is one of those well-known texts of scriptures. But he says this. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, if what? You know this? It's not if they post something on Facebook that says they're my disciple. Uh, no, it, you know, you see, you know the ending. If you love one another. The way that you love others in the church, the way that we actually love each other speaks something. It speaks to the, the truth that we are disciples of Jesus. You know, when your friend asks you, you know, what are you doing? And, and, and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm making for a meal for this woman in my church. She's had this really rough week. You might not realize that, but that actually communicates something to that friend of yours. It actually says something to them. You know what? Christ is my Savior and I'm following Him. That, that communicates something beautiful when we love each other in the way God has called us to. We could give you a million more examples to flesh that out, but the, the bottom line is that, you know, wouldn't it just be wonderful if our love for each other stood out to our friends and neighbors in a way that was so clearly obvious? And so as we maintain the unity that God desires for his covenant people, we, we need to begin to ask ourselves some of these questions that just kind of analyze where we are. You know, how can I, how can I encourage the growth of their relationship with the Savior? You know, how can I make this time of her husband's deployment easier for her? How can I respond to, to his hurtful words 
in a way that, that seeks unity and, and peace instead of vengeance. You know, if, uh, if we're not there yet, and you know, maybe, maybe the truth is we just need to be praying and asking God that, that he would make verse 3 true of our hearts, you know, right there at the beginning where it says that we'd be eager, that we'd be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that God would give us a desire for, for unity in his, his body and in his church and our lives. So we'll finish up here, but let me just ask you just a few self-evaluation questions. <clears throat> Are you at peace with your spouse today in the way that God calls you to be? And these are questions, you know, that are calling you to, to, to move towards it. I see a husband looking at his wife. Uh, you know, is there love between you and, and your Christian friends? Genuine love, the way we see in 1 Corinthians. Or, or this, are there severed relationships in your life that, that need repairing? Because if there are, you know, today's the day to actually begin repairing those severed relationships. Is there someone you need to be more patient with, more understanding with? Does someone need you to, to just show them more patience in, in their walk? And, and if so, you know, for the sake of your own peace, for the sake of the, the unity of the church, this body of believers, would you, would you seek this? Would you seek to maintain the unity that Jesus himself has secured for us on the cross with his death? So we're going to end here. I just want to read again this passage. You know, now that we've kind of opened it up and looked at it a bit, and, and then we'll pray. It's short again. It says, again, Paul's writing, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray.